0: Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios.
1: This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts.
2: Were you afraid that I would desert the church and in fear of my own life abandon you? You heard my answer. I said that the thought of deserting the church could not for an instant enter my mind.
3: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We're going back to the year 386 in the city of Milan in northern Italy. It was preached by Ambrose.
1: Troy, how are you doing this week? Hey, I'm doing good. This is super random, and I don't even know if you'll keep this, but I looked down and I saw the cup I used like a week ago to record, and a spider has built a nest in it. That's terrifying. That's terrifying. I should get that out of here. All right, I'm doing good, Joel. Things are well. Happy New Year, if you're listening to this one out of date, which many of you go back and listen to our episodes. Uh, Happy whatever month or day you are on right now. But for us, Joel and I just finished the New Year. And I hope his was as good as mine was. First show of 2023. It is the first show. And I'm going to be, I mean, I've been hyping this one up. And I think that this one will live up to the hype of what we've been talking about. Ambrose is so cool. I literally have in the script, this sermon is so cool. Ambrose is so awesome. I don't, uh, I look. I love the guys that we do on this show. I love talking about them. I love church history. But there are certain people who, no matter how much you love all of them, there are certain people who will shine a little bit brighter. And Ambrose is uh, like a beacon. This is one impressive, impressive man who lived just an absolutely wild life. Without further ado, let's jump in. Yeah, Ambrose, uh, one of those famous church fathers that we have not covered yet. We've
3: covered, I feel like a good amount of them, but I haven't touched on Ambrose, Ambrose yet. That ends today because we're going to get into, <laughs> uh, into what his life was like. We do caveat these super old ones by saying, "Hey, this sermon is over sixteen hundred years old," and so we usually, we try to keep. I mean, this was this was preached during the Roman Empire, so the same were, Roman Empire that crucified Christ. Reminding right. you, this is the same one, right? So we try to keep things in context. We also try to keep, um, you know, the, the certain claims, certain quotes, certain eyewitness statements, uh, can Oftentimes, be embellished, some semi-apocryphal things sometimes, but uh, we, you know, we'll, we'll mention it when we when we see it here. He was born in the year 339 A.D. to a wealthy Christian family, and when he was born, the legend goes, the the story goes, that a swarm of bees came in and filled the room and and covered him, covered him as a newborn baby infant, and when they flew off, they left honey on his lips. And his dad saw this and he he took it as a sign and he called him Honeymouth, which, you know, is their way of saying he would be a sweet speaker. He'd he'd be a good public speaker. And this is probably almost certainly made up. I don't I find it really interesting because Troy and I just, you know, we talked about Ethiopia this past year. And there was a similar, almost identical story about a, a newborn king that came in and was covered by... And and they left honey behind, and like that took place almost a thousand years after this. I don't know if that's a thing. Like, if you weren't
1: you weren't covered in bees when you were born, Joel Mm -hmm. thought that was something all of us. Well, I'm curious now. Like, I'd like to have a botanist (laughs) write in or something and be like,
3: "Oh, there's a
2: floral aroma." (laughs) If you were covered in
1: bees, child, and honey was left on you, please write in. We want to hear from you. (laughs) Because otherwise, yeah, it sounds silly. Otherwise, but (laughs) but suppose that's 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 how the story goes. That might be one of those apocryphal moments where we're right. telling you a part of the story that we're not quite sure. Um. Ambrose's father
3: died when he was younger, and he kind of followed in his father's footsteps. He became educated and was made the governor of his region, and it was quite a large region. In fact, it was uh, basically the second biggest in the entire Roman Empire, and one of the cities in it was one of the capital cities of the Roman Empire, Milan.
1: In the year 374, Milan's bishop died. The bishop's name was Auxentius. This is important. I know you're going, okay, why are you giving me this old name? It's important. You'll see why later. Now, the bishop that had died was an Arian. Arians at the time were in this big controversy. I think it's actually important to point this out. There are people who kind of see the Nicene, the Council of Nicaea as ending the debate, and it is. The Nicene Creed is what Christians hold to today. Yet they don't always realize that just because the Nicene Council was created and Arius and the Arians were kicked out of the Roman Empire, that was the end of the debate. It was not. This debate would go on for decades and Arians would come back into power and get thrown back out of power. And there were these very long tug of wars happening between the Nicene Creed believing Christians and the Arians going back and forth over who would rule things. The Bishop of Milan at this time was an Arian and he died. And so picking the next one was a big deal because people were, it was looking like the next one was not going to be an Arian, but many of the people of Milan were Arians and they were upset by that. And this became this big contentious election occurring. And while this is occurring, Ambrose goes down there and gives a speech basically saying, Hey, let's be christians let's have calm conduct we're not going to erupt into riots we're going to do this the right way regardless of the outcomes we're going to trust god all this stuff and while he's giving the speech the people just start chanting ambrose for bishop ambrose for bishop to the point that he can't even finish now ambrose says i don't you know i don't want to be bishop no thank you and immediately goes into hiding at his friend's house and doesn't want to see anybody he had good reasons by the way to not want to be a bishop he was not formally baptized he was not formally trained. He was not formally ordained. He in no way saw himself as worthy of being a bishop, and you could make a good case that he wasn't. He was a young politician. The Arians wanted him because they knew that he was a nice, good guy. The non-Arians wanted him because he was a nice, scene guy. And so everyone was saying, look, he looks like the perfect fit. And Ambrose was known for being a great speaker, a good man, not treating people roughly. So everyone said, look, we want ambrose to be the bishop
3: right and this is again one of the the, the biggest cities in the roman empire uh, is unanimously trying to get him to be the bishop uh, again someone that's not trained unbaptized not it doesn't have any theological training whatsoever and he doesn't want the position he's hiding with his buddies and uh one of his buddies brings back a letter that was addressed to him from the emperor of rome uh formally accepting his position as the Bishop of Milan. And so his friends kind of gave him up. And uh, a week later, Ambrose was baptized and properly ordained and and put into the system. And I mean, Ambrose was certainly hesitant to take up the job, but uh, he did seem like he pretty quickly surrendered to what that position held. He sold all of his property. uh, He gave up all of his lands everything but a portion of land that belonged to his sister, but she actually would end up giving up that land when she became a nun. So kind of a whole family thing of surrendering to the will of the church there. He also began giving some allowance to the poor people, and he just adopted the classic lifestyle of, of a bishop here. And this just made him more popular everywhere. You know, everyone loved this guy. And he began studying theology. You know, he wanted to know what he was talking about. He wanted to to actually understand what he was doing and He learned under some really great teachers. He even wrote some letters back with Basil of Caesarea, which we've uh, done some shows on. And even though the Arians, uh, they had helped set him up for the job, you know, they put him in that position, Ambrose's theological studies would quickly have him coming up with arguments that disproved their viewpoint. The Arianism viewpoint was one that, you know, was showing that Jesus was a created creature made by God. And very quickly, Ambrose is saying, that's not theologically accurate. That's not
1: correct. All of this eventually led to a council that he got named the president of to formally debate the big Aryans of the city and kind of have it out in the year 381. That seemed like a good idea. However, the Aryans decided not to show up, or at least none of their big names did. So the council unanimously decided their heresy We're throwing you out again. And so there they kind of got rid of them. It is not like a big council of Nicaea council, but it was important for Milan at the time. Now, the emperor of Rome was seated in Milan, there was kind of two emperors, it's a whole thing, we're not going to get into all of that right now, but the, the emperor of this side of Rome was seated in Milan at the time, and his name was Valentinian II, and he was only a teenager. His mom was an ardent Aryan, and she was not going to sit idly by watching her you know, beliefs get thrown out of the city. In the year 385, several important council members, military leaders, all at once suddenly came out as Arian, saying basically it was a surprise attack to swiftly boot out their side. Like, oh, you're going to get rid of, you would, you would normally get rid of one of us, but what do you do when all the leadership all at once suddenly tells you we're on the same side? They demanded that uh, all of the Nicene people had to give them what they wanted. And one of the things they deeply demanded were that two of the churches, these big basilicas, uh, that Ambrose had kind of helped build some of them would be used now by the Aryans. Ambrose was summoned to a council and he got there. The mobs of the city were there and they were angry that the Aryans had kind of done this surprise attack and they started to get very upset and were kind of getting ready to damage and destroy things. But Ambrose was kind of pushed out and they said, go calm them down. And through pure eloquence, through just giving a speech and rallying the people, he calmed the crowds down. And even the people in the council in the royal throne room were so moved by his speech, they let him go home. This should have been the end of things, right? Okay, it looks like everyone's kind of happy. The basilicas get to stay with the Nicene Christians. Everything's good, right? Then a man named Auxentius shows up, and he was a bishop for the Arians at the time. And you may be saying, "Wait, Auxentius, the name familiar, wasn't he the guy that died?" Yeah. He was. This is not a guy brought back from the life. He wasn't a fake out. This was another man, an Arian bishop who came into town and gave himself the name Oxentius to lend himself the credibility of the other guy, kind of calling himself after that man, I guess. And he convinced the emperor to pass a law saying Arians were allowed to worship freely and anyone who tried to stop them should go to jail. This led into a big fight with who could run the churches and where they were going to run those churches and would Ambrose and his people have to give their church space and time for the Arians to worship there? Yeah, and the Arians during this time were, were doing
3: everything they could to try to trap Ambrose. There's this instance where they set up this neutral, in air quotes, this neutral debate, and they invited him to show up to, to formally have a discussion and talk about uh, you know their viewpoints and how they disagreed. And Ambrose did not show up. And it's good he didn't because it was all a trick. It was a ruse. The Arians were planning on uh, arresting him and taking him to jail if he did show up. But, uh, you know, it's kind of a lose-lose because by not showing up, then the Arians accuse him of being a coward and, and you know, not standing up for what he believes. And things like this heated up until uh, the emperor sent soldiers to take over the churches themselves. And this happened while church was in the middle of the service, mid-Sunday morning here. And it was definitely meant to be kind of a show of force, right? You have soldiers come up, they clear out the building, kind of scare off any, any people that are attending these Ambrosian services. But the problem was it didn't go as expected. The parishioners that were leading these services ended up barricading themselves inside of the churches. And rather than going out and meeting the soldiers there, and the soldiers themselves had a little bit of questioning their allegiance as well because they didn't want to be excommunicated by the church or arrested from the bishop's standpoint. You know, that the bishop still had a lot of power in the city as well. And so a lot of the soldiers would actually end up defecting to the bishop's side, towards Ambrose' side. And you end up having this weird power struggle within the city where these church buildings are now barricading themselves up and sieging themselves inside of these cathedrals and, you know, whenever that happens, logistically, whenever there's a, a siege, right, you got to start crunching numbers. How much food do you have? How long can you last in this position when you don't have supplies going in and out? Where do people sleep? You know, how long is this going to last? And it ended up lasting several days.
1: During the siege to take the church and give it to the Arians, Ambrose had them sing psalms. They conducted services as normal. And he gave this big sermon, this kind of rallying sermon that you're going to hear here in just a few minutes. He puts the blame fully on the Arian bishop, Auxentius, as you will see. But ultimately, he sees that no matter what happens, this is a chance for him to die for Christ. Now, it's easy to say, I will die for Christ. It is another thing to preach, I'm willing to die for Christ, when the Roman guards are on the other side of the door, you know, knocking to get in, and they very well can take you to the emperor and have you arrested, have you killed. This is not just bluster, right? He he really is saying this in a life and death situation. Now I will go into the details a little bit more in a second, but to wrap up the siege and kind of tell you how it goes, it, it doesn't work. They they end up giving up. The emperor backs down um and this is not the first emperor that Ampros will actually go to bat with. He'll end up kind of tangling with three different emperors, you know, going man to man with them and he wins all three cases pretty much. Now, one of the bigger ones was this 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 fight he gets into with the next emperor after Uh, Valentinian II, Emperor Theodosius. Now, a man in Thessalonica was an athlete, but was caught engaging in homosexuality in Thessalonica. This was a crime in the empire, and he was going to be executed by the governor. But the Thessalonicans loved this athlete. They didn't think it was fair, so they rioted. And while they were rioting for this popular athlete in Thessalonica, they killed the governor. The Emperor Theodosius heard about this and decided, look, this is a big, messy situation. We're going to hold an athletic tournament there. We're going to get people to move on. So he brings everyone in, brings out this athlete. Let's let bygones be bygones. Then he locks the doors of the tournament room, and his soldiers kill 7,000 people inside the athletic event. He locked them all in, and the emperor killed
3: them. Yeah, so when Ambrose heard about this, he was completely heartbroken. He, he hated that whole situation. And he wrote a letter to the emperor saying that uh, he has to feel grief over what he did and to repent of his sins, or he couldn't go and worship. And the emperor did so. He he made a formal apology and repentance. And the two of these people, Ambrose and the emperor, actually kind of became good friends. And Ambrose mentored him uh, all the way until his death. And so kind of That's an interesting relationship, kind of an interesting aspect of the life. I would would have liked to hear more about what this emperor and Ambrose's relationship was like after this. Supposedly, and this might be an untrue quote, you know, in one of those apocryphal quotes, but supposedly the emperor said of Ambrose that he knew of no bishop worthy of the name bishop except Ambrose. This uh, was the first time in the Roman Empire that a political power bowed to the church, And this would become a huge theme of the European and Catholic dynamic over the next millennia was who is actually in charge. Is it the church or is it the state?
1: we could go on and on about Ambrose's accomplishments, his feuds, different things going on. Uh, he died in the year 397, but for a man who did not want to be a bishop and was not qualified to be one and did not really go into ministry until his 30s, he died around 58 or 59 years old, having pretty much changed the world. Now, he wrote many books. He introduced congregational singing, as far as we can tell. He wrote philosophy. He wrote hymns. Yeah, the reason you have probably heard of Ambrose, if you've heard of him at all, we haven't even mentioned yet. You see, in the year 384, just before the wild siege of Milan occurred, a young man dissatisfied with his job in Rome, currently a Manichean, a cult at the time, moved to take a job in Milan. He had heard of Ambrose and went to see him speak. He had thought Christian preachers were poor fools, his words, but Ambrose blew it all away. As as busy as Ambrose was and all that he had going on, dealing with emperors, dealing with the churches, trying to be taken over, he still made time sometimes to work with this young unbeliever And walk him through his questions. When that man, already past 30 himself, asked to be baptized, Ambrose ran him through an intense discipleship program at his church, 60 sessions, and on some weeks they would have to meet two times a day before Ambrose decided he was ready to be baptized. And on that day, that man, along with the others being baptized, were donned in white gowns and were brought in front of the whole city for everyone to see as they got baptized. That young man was Augustine. And Ambrose, Was absolutely instrumental in leading him out of Manichaeanism, away from the cults of the time, and introducing him and bringing him into Christianity. Despite how busy Ambrose was, Ambrose's probably biggest impact, what he's most famous for, is not his battles with emperors, not fighting for the church, but it was the young disciple that he was making along the way. Perhaps Augustine maybe even saw this sermon live. We don't know. He was in Milan at the time. He did like Ambrose. This sermon given at a time when all Ambrose had to do was just give up the church and share it with the Aryans. Not give up God, but just give up the church for Aryan services. But Ambrose risked his life to say no. That is the kind of courage Christianity needs more of today.
2: I see that you are unusually excited today. All your eyes are fixed on me. I'm at a loss to know why. Is it that you saw or heard that an imperial message has been brought to me by the council? They are commanding me to leave from here and that all who are with me must follow me. Were you afraid that I would desert the church and in fear of my own life abandon you? But you heard my answer. I said that the thought of deserting the church could not for an instant enter my mind. For I feared the Lord of the universe more than the ruler of the empire. Even if I were to be forcibly removed from the church, it would be my body, not my mind, which would be driven by violence from here. For if the emperor will act as a royal power, shouldn't, I am prepared to do my part as a priest and suffer. So why is it that you are distressed? I will never desert you of my own will, but I may not repel force by force. I will have to mourn, to weep, and to groan over this matter. When weapons, soldiers, or barbarians attack me, my tears are my weapons, for these are the defenses of a shepherd. By any other means, I cannot and will not use them to resist but to fly and desert the church is not my will. You yourselves know that I desire to pay respect to our elders, but that does not mean to give way to them. I will willingly offer myself to punishment, not fearing what is prepared for me. Oh, if only I could be sure that the church would not be delivered to heretics, I would willingly go to the emperor's palace were this insured to us so as to hold our contest rather in the palace than in the church. But in court, Christ is not accustomed to be the accused, for he is the judge. Who will disagree that a matter of faith should be pleaded within the church? If anyone has confidence in his cause, let him come to us here. Let him not look for judgment of the emperor, which already shows its bias, which has plainly declared by the law that he has enacted, that he is adverse to the faith, nor let him run to the support of certain politicians. For I will not give occasion to anyone to barter or haggle so as to gain a wrong to Christ. The guard of soldiers and the clang of swords which surround the church do not alarm my faith but they do make me fear that in keeping me here, you may be in danger yourselves. For I have learned that I should not fear for myself, but I begin now to fear more for you. We have another adversary who challenges us, for our real adversary is the devil. He goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, as the apostle says. Doubtless he has obtained He has obtained, not to deceive us, but to warn us, it is recorded, this power of temptation. To distract us with the sounds of swords and the clang of armor. If I fall for this temptation, I will be removed from the steadfastness of my faith. You have also read that the devil tempted holy Job in many ways. And last of all, the devil begged and obtained the power for afflicting his body, which he covered with sores. So, the devil now threatens to wound my body. When I was asked to give up the church plate, I made this reply, that if my own property was required of me, farm or house or gold or silver, anything that lies within my power, I would willingly give it, but that I would withdraw nothing from God's temple, nor surrender what had been committed to me to keep, not to surrender." and that I was also doing this for the emperor's good. For it is neither for me to surrender nor for him to receive God's things from me. Let him then listen to the words of an independent bishop. If he regards his own soul, let him abstain from doing wrong to Christ. These are words full of humility and I believe of that love and care which a bishop owes to his emperor. But since our contest is not only against flesh and blood, but also against spiritual wickedness in high places, that tempter, the devil, elevated the contest with his own ministers. The devil deems that by the wounds of my body the trial must be made. I know, brothers, that these wounds which we receive for Christ are no wounds at all. Life is not lost by them, but wounds are the fertile soil of the faith. I beg you, allow this to happen. Let the contest take place. It is for you to be spectators only. Do not fight the guards. Consider that if there is in a city an athlete or one skilled in some other ability, he wishes to present himself for combat. Why Would you reject in this great matter what you allow for, even in smaller ones? Without a doubt, if the Lord has appointed me to this trial, it is in vain that you have kept sleepless watch and guard through so many nights and days. The will of Christ will be performed. For our Lord Jesus Christ is almighty, and this is our faith. And so what he bids to be done will be fulfilled. It it does us no good to attempt to run counter to the divine will. You have heard what has been read today in the daily reading. The Savior commanded a donkey's colt to be brought to him by the apostles and commanded that if anyone thought to hinder them, they should say, the Lord has need of him. What if now also he has commanded this donkey's colt that is the colt of that animal, which is accustomed to bear a heavy burden. Such is the condition of man, to whom it is said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy. What if he has now commanded this colt to be brought to him? Isn't it your job to say, should anyone seek to hinder this, the Lord has need of him neither desire of this life or flesh and blood or the conversation of the world should seek to hinder them but he who loves me here cannot give a better testimony of his affection than by suffering me to become a sacrifice for christ because to be dissolved and to be with christ is much better (laughs) oh to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes You have, my beloved brethren, no cause for fear. For I know that whatever I suffer, I suffer for Christ. And I have read that I ought not to fear those who can kill the flesh. And I have heard one say, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Why, if the Lord wills it, I am sure that no resistance will be made. But if he still delays our contest, why should we fear? It is not bodily protection but the Lord's providence which is ready to protect the servant of Christ. You were disturbed earlier at finding some doors not closed which a blind man on returning home is said to have opened by mistake. Realize then that human guards are no protection for us. (laughs) One who has lost the gift of sight has broken through all your barriers and baffled your watch but the Lord has not lost the guard of his mercy. Don't you remember that two days ago there was a wide open entrance on the left side of the basilica, which you thought you had checked? The basilica was surrounded by armed men who inspected every entrance for a way in, yet somehow their eyes were blinded so that they could not discover the way, which was wide open. And so it remained open, as you know, for many nights. Stop all this anxiety, for what Christ commands and what is best will come to pass. Now let's look at examples from the Old Testament. Elisha was wanted by the king of Syria, and an army was sent to take him. He was surrounded on every side, and the Holy Prophet prayed that the servant's eyes might be opened, and said, look and see how many more are on our side than against us. And he looked up, and he saw thousands of angels. You see then that the servants of Christ are protected, rather, by invisible than visible beings. But when they keep guard around you, they have been called to do so by your prayers." For you have read that those very men who sought Elisha on entering Samaria came upon the very man whom they wished to capture, and yet they were not able to injure him, but were saved by the pleading of that very man that they came to take. Take the apostle Peter as well as an example of both these things. When Herod came and took him, and he was put in prison, for the servant of God has not fled, but stood firm without fear. The church prayed for him. But the apostle was asleep in the prison, proof that he wasn't afraid, and an angel was sent to wake him from his sleep. And by him, Peter was brought out of the prison and for the time, escaped death. The same Peter, later in life, by spreading the precepts of God among the people and preaching purity, stirred up the minds of the pagans against him. And when they meant to put him to death, the Christians begged him to retire for a little while. And although he desired to suffer for Christ, yet he was moved by the sight of the people praying, for they begged him to reserve himself for the instruction and confirmation of the people. To be brief, church history tells us that as he set out from the walls by night, but he saw Christ meeting him in the gate and entering the city, and he said, Lord, where do you go? Christ answered, I am coming to be crucified again. This divine response Peter understood to refer to his own cross, for Christ who had put off the flesh by undergoing the suffering of death could not again be crucified. For in that he died, he died to sin once, but in that he lives, he lives for God. And so Peter understood that Christ was again to be crucified in his servant. And so Peter turned back of his own accord. And when the Christians asked him why, he told them what he had seen. He was immediately seized and Honored the Lord Jesus by his cross to death for when the hour of his passion had not yet arrived Christ passed through the midst of them who wanted him and they saw him but they could not take hold of him which shows that when the Lord wills each man is found and taken but while their time has not yet come they can be seen but won't be taken as for me, didn't I go out to make daily visits or to visit the tomb of the martyrs? While going and returning, didn't I pass close by the royal palace? And yet no man arrested me, though they wished to drive me from this city, and they declared to us, Leave the city and go where you will. I expected, I confess, something great to happen to me, to be burned or slain with the sword for the name of Christ. But they tempted me with delights instead of suffering. And yet the soldiers of Christ do not seek delights, but sufferings. When that temptation failed, they tried to alarm us by preparing a prison transport for me. Augentius began to speak many terrible things about me and defamed my name everywhere. Many said that executioners had been sent for us, that the punishment of death had been decreed. I do not fear them, nor will I desert my post. For where I should go to find a place like this one that is full of nothing but tears and groans for my cause? For in every church, the clergy are ordered to be cast out, and if they resist, then they are to be put to death. All the senators who do not obey this mandate are to be condemned, and yet it is supposedly a bishop who writes these orders with his own hand and dictates them with his own mouth. We read in the prophet that he saw a flying sickle And in imitation of this auxentius, sends a winged sword through all the cities. And through this false bishop, Satan transforms himself into an angel of light and imitates his power for evil purposes. This bishop who slays with the sword the faithful is the devil's minister. You, Lord Jesus, in one moment have redeemed the world. Will auxentius in one moment so far as he can slay so many people. Some will fall by the sword and others will fall by his deception. My basilica he wanted with words and through hands of blood. For the ungodly says God, why do you preach my laws? There is no agreement between peace and wrath or between Christ and Baal You yourselves remember how in the lesson from today's Bible study that the holy man Naboth, the the owner of a vineyard, was requested by the king to surrender his vineyard to him. This so that the king might root up the vines and plant it with common herbs and vegetables. And he answered, God forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And that king was sorrowful that what belonged by right to another was refused when he claimed it as his right. And he only gained it by the deceit of a woman's trickery. Naboth then defended his vineyard to the death. If he would not surrender his vineyard, why would we choose to surrender the church of Christ? (laughs) They say I was rebellious. How was I rebellious in my response? When summoned, I said, God forbid that I should surrender Christ's heritage. If Naboth would not surrender the heritage of his fathers, will I surrender Christ's heritage? I added, God forbid that I should surrender the heritage of my fathers, the heritage of Dionysus who died in exile for the faith of the Confessor, Eustorgius, of Miracles, and of all the faithful bishops of old time. I answered as it would be expected of a bishop to answer. Let the emperor act as an emperor. He will deprive me of my life sooner than my faith. But to whom am I? to surrender it. The lesson just read from the gospel should teach us what it is that is demanded. You heard it read that when Christ was sitting on the donkey's colt, the children cried out and the Jews were indignant, appealing to the Lord Jesus and saying that he should bid them hold their peace. But he replied, if these were to hold their peace, the very stones would cry out, then he entered the temple and cast out the money changers and their tables and those that sold doves in the temple of God. This lesson was read by no direction of our doing, but by chance. But it suits well with the present time we are in. For the praises of Christ are always as if they were whips to unbelievers. Now, when Christ is praised, the heretics say that we are exciting sedition and rebellion. The heretics say that they were thereby threatened with death by us, and truly the praises of Christ are death to them. For how can they bear his praises who they are attempting to weaken? For to this day, the praises of Christ are a whip to the madness of the Arians. The Gerasenes could not bear the presence of Christ. These men today, worse than the Gerasenes, cannot even bear the praises of Christ. They cringe at children singing the glory of Christ. For it is written out of the mouths of babes and infants, You have perfected praise. They deride their early years once full of faith and say, Why do they cry out? But Christ answers them. If these should hold their peace, the very stones would cry out. Christ then, invited by these praises, enters his temple. And takes his whip and drives out the money changers for he will not permit those who are slaves of money to be in his temple he will not suffer those who sell honors will i then introduce into the temple the one that christ excludes for he is commanded to leave who would sell out the church he is commanded to go out who would sell the simple minds of the faithful so auxentius is cast out this man Mercurianus is excluded. Don't be confused. Auxentius actually goes by two names, but it's, it's the same person. That it might not be known who he was before, he changed his name. And as there once had lived here a man named Auxentius, the Arian bishop, so he, to deceive the people whom the other had once influenced, called himself Auxentius as well. So he changed his name. But as treachery, he could not change. He took off wolf's clothing and yet put back on wolf. It does not work for him to have changed his name. What he really is, is known to us. He was known by one name in the regions of Scythia. Now here, he is called by another. He has names that differ according to where he is. And so he has two names. And if he leaves us here, he'll go elsewhere and gain a third name. For how will he endure to keep a name which betrays the greatness of his crime? In Scythia, he did less wickedly, and yet he was so ashamed as to change his name. Here, he has dared to do more awful things. So will he keep this name? After writing with his own hand the death warrant for so many people, will he be able to retain his mind unshaken? The Lord Jesus drove out a few from his temple, but... Auxentius left no one. Jesus casts men out of his temple with a whip, but Auxentius means to drive us out with the sword. Jesus used a rod, but this 2 named man will use his ax. Our holy Lord drives out the sacrilegious with a whip. This wicked man persecutes the godly with sword. He will carry the laws he has written with him, even though he will not desire to. He will carry with him what he has done in his conscience. Even though he doesn't always carry the writing itself, he will carry his own soul written in the blood of those he kills. Although he does not carry a letter inscribed with ink, it will be seen there on his soul. Your sin, O Judah, is written with a pen of iron and the point of a diamond, and it is carved into your heart, carved into that place that it came out of. Does he, stained as he is with blood and slaughter, dare to expect a debate with me? Those whom he fails to deceive by his arguments, he sentences to be destroyed with a sword. And he dictates bloody laws with his mouth, writing them in his hand and thinking that the law can impose a creed on the hearts of men. He's never heard what was read today. A man is not justified by the works of the law or I by the law am dead to the law that I might live to God. That is, by the spiritual law, he is dead to the carnal interpretation of the law. Let us, too, by the law of our Lord Jesus Christ, die to this law, which sanctions the decrees of sin. It is not the law which has gathered together the church, but the faith of Christ. For the law is not of faith, but the just live by faith. It is faith, then, not the law, which makes a man just. Because righteousness is not by the law, but by the faith of Christ. But he who rejects faith and takes law for his rule bears witness to his own unrighteousness. For the just will live by faith. Will anyone here follow this law that condemns the council of Arianism that calls Christ a created creature? But they say God sent his son made of a woman, made under the law, but the verses show us that he who knew no sin, but was made sin for us, for he took upon him our sins to do away with them by the sacrament of his passion. These points, my brothers, I, I would have discussed more fully with you in Auxentius' presence, but he, being aware that you were not ignorant of the faith, fled from your questions. And instead, he chose as his advocates to judge this matter four or five pagans. Now, I would willingly have these pagans join us in our general assembly, but not for them to judge Christ's church. Instead, they might hear of the majesty of Christ and be converted. They, however, have already pronounced judgment on Auxentius themselves. For when he daily argued before them, they gave him no case. What can be a greater condemnation of him that he was defeated without an adversary even showing up before his own selected judges? So we see their own judgment against Auxentius. And justly is he to be condemned for choosing pagan judges. For he disregarded the apostles' teaching, which says... Would any of you dare, having a problem with another brother, go to law before the pagan instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And below, he says, Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that will be able to judge between his brothers. But brother goes to law with brother, and that happens before the unbelievers? You see that what he attempted is against the apostles' authority. So choose now whether we should follow Auxentius or Paul as our master. Even our Lord himself cries by the prophet, come to me, my people, that you know righteousness in whose heart is my law. God says, come to me, my people, you that know righteousness. Auxentius says, you do not know righteousness. Do you see now that he, who rejects the declaration of the heavenly oracles, despises God in you? Come to me, my people, says the Lord. He does not say, come to me, you Gentiles alone. He does not say, come to me, only you Jews. For now, they that were once the people of God have become the people of error. And they who were the people of error have become the people of God because they have believed in Christ. So those people are judges in whose heart is the divine, not human, law. The law written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not inscribed on paper, but stamped on the heart. The law of grace, not of blood. Who is it then who wrongs you? He who refuses to be heard by you, but flees to pagan judges? or he who chooses to be heard by you. Hemmed in on all sides, auxentious wishes to excite rumors against me in the presence of the emperor. Do you remember last year when I was summoned to the palace in the presence of the nobles? We argued before the council on this very issue. The emperor wished to take away the basilica. I was not then afraid by the mere presence of the imperial court. I maintained the firmness of a priest and did not suffer our rights to be infringed there. Don't they remember that when the people knew I had gone to the palace, they rushed in with a mob that nothing could stand against? And when the military general came out with some light troops to disperse the multitude, they all offered themselves to death for their faith in Christ. Was I seen as afraid in all of this? No. They even requested that I make a long speech to soothe the people. And during the speech, I pledged by my faith that no one should invade the church's basilica. Did they forget all this? And since my presence was requested by the palace, I went as a kindness to them. But the coming of the people to the palace of my aid was used as a grounds for a charge against me. I'm the one who restrained the people. And yet, I did not escape them dishonoring me. This kind of disgrace should be expected rather than feared. For what should we fear before the name of Christ? Now they accuse me with this. And shouldn't the emperor then have one basilica to go to? And does Ambrose desire to be more powerful than the emperor, so to exclude him from the ability of attending church? When they say this, they wish to trap me with my words. This is like the Jews who tempted Christ with empty words, saying, Master, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Must the servants of God always be open to attack on Caesar's account? And does ungodliness with a bent towards falsehood seem to use the imperial name as a cloak? Yet see how much worse the Arians are than the Jews. The Jews inquired of Christ, whether he thought that the right of tribute should be rendered to Caesar, the Arians are happy to surrender to the emperor the rights of the church. But they are traitors just like their master. And so let us answer what our master instead has taught us. For Jesus, perceiving the treachery of the Jews, said to them, why do you tempt me, hypocrites? Show me a penny. And when they gave it to him, he said, whose image? And whose superscription is on this? They answered, Caesar's. Jesus replied, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. So I also say to those who find fault with me, show me a penny. Jesus saw the penny with Caesar's and said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Can those who try to seize the basilicas of the church show me how it is Caesar's? For the church has one image. That is the image of the invisible God. Of which God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That image of which it is written that Christ is the brightness of his glory. The express image of his substance. In this image I behold the Father. As the Lord Jesus himself said, he that has seen me has seen the Father also. For this image is not divided from the Father, for he has taught me the unity of the Trinity, saying, I and the Father are one. And below, all things that the Father has are mine. And of the Holy Spirit, saying that he is the Spirit of Christ and has received from Christ, as it is written, he will take of mine and will declare it to you. Are we being proud in this If he asks for tribute, we won't deny it. The church lands pay tribute to the emperor. If the emperor desires to possess those lands, he has the power to claim them himself. None of us will interfere. We, the church, will still be able to collect and take care of the poor. Let them have no ill will on account of the lands. Let them take them if it pleases the emperor. I won't give them to him, but I do not refuse if he demands. They ask for gold but I could say silver and gold I seek not. I do have a salary, it is true. My salary is the poor of Christ. This is a treasure which I am well used to collecting. May this offense of giving gold to the poor be charged upon me. And if they choose me of defending myself by their own means, I do not deny it. Take me to court for a defense I have. My evidence is in the prayers of the poor. Blind they are, and lame, weak, and old. Yet their prayers are stronger than the largest warriors. Now they claim that the people have been tricked by the strings of my hymns. I do not deny this either. It is a lofty chord I play, and nothing is more powerful. For what can be more powerful than the hymns of the Trinity? And it is sung daily by the mouth of Of the people all zealously desire to make profession of their faith all here know how to confess in verse the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit (laughs) oh what can be better than for us to follow the example of Christ who being found in fashion as a man humbled himself being made obedient to death and again by obedience he delivered all For as by the disobedience of one man many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one man many will be made righteous. If he was obedient, then let them learn from him the lesson of obedience. On the emperor's account, we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. To Caesar, tribute is due. We don't deny it, but the church is God's. And it must not be given up to Caesar because the temple of God cannot be right by Caesars. It is the church of God that this is said would do honor to the emperor, no one can deny. For what can be more honorable for the emperor than for him to be accepted as a son of the church? In saying this, we are loyal to him without sinning against God. For the emperor is within the church, but not over the church. A good emperor seeks the good of the church, and he does not reject the church's goodness to him. We say this humbly, but we will assert it firmly. Some men threaten us with fire, sword, and banishment. We, the servants of Christ, have learned not to fear these. To those who have courage, nothing can alarm them. It would seem now that we have answered all the attacks against us as well. Now I ask the Arians the same question as did the Savior. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And the Jews could not answer him. If the Jews did not annul the baptism of John, will Auxentius now annul the baptism of Christ? For that baptism is not from men, but from Christ, which the angel of mighty counsel brought down to us. This is so that we might be justified before God. Why then does Auxentius hold that the faithful, those baptized in the name of Trinity, need to be rebaptized? For the apostle says, one faith, one baptism. He says he is fighting with men. But in reality, he's fighting God.
1: The arguments that the Arians made to hold the church were so convincing, so smooth, so nice sounding. One of the big ones was, well, the emperor should have a church in his own city to worship in, don't you think? You know, everyone else has a church and it's fine and legal for all these different religions and yet you wouldn't even give the emperor his own church to worship in and yet ambrose said firmly no we are not going to give up the house of god to the arians we're not going to give up the house of god even for an hour for these other people to come in and worship god their own god in we won't give up our temple to be a home of idols it reminds me of when the christians before in the earlier days of the roman empire were just just burn a little incense to the emperor you know it's not a big deal just burn. you don't have to believe it just do it all ambrose had to do to end this whole siege was say yeah okay we'll share this church it's fine but he held the ground and he held the line and he said no it was unpopular in some ways and yet it worked out for him and who knows the impact it had on so many people who followed him we discussed how augustine would have been somebody who was in the city during this crazy time of Ambrose's life and looked up to it and the impact that Augustine, Ambrose, and these other people would have throughout history completely changed the world. Yet it would have all been given up if Ambrose had compromised in a little area and said, you know what, fine, we'll we'll, close, we'll give them an hour or two to worship, it's fine. Ambrose held the line. And that is what we as Christians need to continue doing in our own day. We need to learn from these courageous men of history who didn't give up And we need to share that same kind of courage in today and the world around us.
3: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Ed Backell. Special thanks to Ed for helping us create all these episodes. Uh, He's been been a regular on our show, and we really appreciate having him. He was born in Washington State and has taught for 30-plus years in churches in Oregon, Washington and Nebraska. He's currently in Warden, Washington, and has been serving at Warden Community Church
1: since May of 2010. Ed Backell is is a great speaker. He's done several sermons for us. We are extremely grateful for all the episodes and help he has put in throughout the years. So big thank you to him. Uh, And thank you to all of the people who have volunteered to speak and helped episodes of our show get created. If you would like to speak a sermon with us, we always need more people to volunteer. Our show is quite literally created by volunteers you know you may have heard other shows or PBI thanks to volunteers like you and great audiences like yours but we can literally say that all of our sermons are read by somebody who listened to the show and volunteered uh to help us read one of these sermons so we're really grateful for all of you who have done that and if you would like to do that there's a means to do that just get in contact with us email us at revivedthoughts at gmail.com and we can get you started on that process this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts